0: Thank you so much for being willing to chat and talk with other people. For some of you, that was the most energizing thing you've done all day. And some of you just got drained for the rest of the day. So anyway, for those of you who got drained, thanks for willing to suffer through talking to some folks. Anyway, um, so I have not been preaching for the last couple weeks. Let me reintroduce myself. My name is Brian Pierce, and uh, I am, believe it or not... um, uh, a pastor on staff here at Seven Hills Fellowship. My wife and I moved here a little bit over nine years ago to start this church with people in our living room. And uh, so it's just fun to see us be at this point today. Um, we are in the middle of a series called Revolutionary. So you see actually the, uh, the, the uh, slide up here. And uh, the idea of the series is we wanted to unpack um, what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do. And the reason we call the series Revolutionary is uh, because when Jesus called the disciples to be part of the church, or in Greek, the ekklesia, that word ekklesia was actually the Greek word um, for a revolution. And so what was interesting is in the context, when the people um, who, whether they were Jewish or whether they were Greek, when they heard that term ekklesia, they would have thought revolution. In fact, the word uh, literally means to be called out. But the reason that these people were being called out is a town crier would go throughout various cities, calling people out of their houses, into the streets, in order to issue a vote of no confidence in a corrupt political leader or in a corrupt political system. And so when Jesus said, I want to call you to be part of this ecclesia in Matthew chapter 16, what he was doing is he was saying, I'm calling you to be part of this revolution and so by definition, every revolution does the same thing. It, it's, you know, it's out with the old and in with the new. And so uh, basically what Jesus was saying is there, there's a corrupt power, which is, um, which is over us, over you, that needs to be kicked out. And we need to join together in, uh, in calling this new revolution to come to place. Now, uh, the question would be, well, what was that corrupt power? Um, I think one answer would be that um, one of the corrupt powers is us. You know, we need to, to, to kick ourselves off the throne and invite Jesus onto the throne, right? In some degree, uh, in some senses, Jesus would have been understood as talking about the Roman officials. That's probably not so much what he had in mind. Uh, there are other ways we could think about it, but the idea is that because what Jesus was calling his disciples to was a revolution, then that actually makes them revolutionaries. And in the same way as we are called to be part of the church, we're called to be revolutionaries as well. Now, interestingly enough, you look at the church and you look at all sorts of literature about what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do, and there's really five basic things that every church is supposed to do, and these are broad categories. But the first thing that churches are supposed to do is they're supposed to worship. They're supposed to honor and glorify God and worship. God is the primary audience. We are secondary, but God is primary. Uh, John Piper has this great quote where he basically says, when Jesus comes back again one day, There'll be no more need for discipleship, there'll be no more need for mercy and justice, there'll be no more need for evangelism, but there'll still be worship. So worship is one of the primary callings of the church. The next thing that the church is supposed to do is the church is actually supposed to teach. Part of what you saw Jesus doing was he not only went around healing people physically and casting demons out of people and reconciling people to God and to their fellow men, but the way in which Jesus often did that was through teaching. And so part of what the church is supposed to do is teach. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, Part of what the church is supposed to do is be involved in in really revolutionary relationship, revolutionary community. You look at the beginning of, uh, of Acts chapter two, and there are all these people, and they're being added to the church because fundamentally, what the church is doing is it's loving people well. It's loving its own people well. First John says that you know we'll know that people are Christians by their love for one another, and so part of what Jesus says, part of what John confirms is one of the evidences of being the true church, the called out ones, of being followers of Christ, is that we really love one another in a revolutionary way, that we recognize that our our time and our finances don't really belong to us at all. They're ultimately all gods. We're stewarding those for him. So worship, teaching, fellowship. But then the other things that are involved are mercy and justice. Bob talked about this last week, this idea that uh, as Christians, as followers of Christ being called to be part of this revolution, We're actually called to break down unjust systems, right, and replace them with just systems. We're called uh, to take care of people in need, the least and the lost, those that uh, are in need of help. We're to be involved in mercy and justice, and not just um, in some formulaic way, but in a revolutionary way. And then finally, uh, as the body of Christ, as those who are called to be part of this revolution, we're also called to revolutionary evangelism. This idea that we're out there um, to be telling people and showing people about the good news of Jesus and how he actually calls them into a relationship with his Father in order that they might flourish as human beings, in order that they might be the human beings that God created them to be. This morning, we're going to focus on uh, teaching. We're going to focus on this, this topic of teaching. I'm going to get into it in just a minute. But before I do that, I'm going to take a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to open with um, a little illustration, which some of you weren't alive for when it first came out. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, thanks for this day. Thank you for these people. Um, Father, I thank you that as I look around this room, um, I don't know, again, why these people came to this place this morning, at least why they decided to come to this place, whether it was to be with a friend or maybe because they felt distant from you, they felt like maybe they needed to to worship. I I don't know what their reasons are, but I know what your reasons are, Father. And I know that what your desire is um, that all men would have an encounter with you, the living God. And so, Father, I pray that, um, that that would happen this morning, that through the power of your Spirit, through the power of your word, through the power of these believers in this room, Father, that people wouldn't be able to leave this place this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, before we jump into this opening illustration, let me set the stage. Uh, in 1989, uh, Robin Williams started a movie called The Dead Poets Society. The Dead Poet Society. How many of you were not alive in 1989? Just raise your hand. Okay, awesome. Hopefully some of you have seen this. It's a great movie. Everybody in here who was born you know, prior to that and who's seen this movie is like, oh, I feel so old. Didn't that just come out last year? Anyway, so the, the basic premise of this movie, it's set in 1959, and uh, it's set at this, you know, this, uh, this male, all-male preparatory school, this academy, Welton Academy. And, uh, and it's you know all these kids that are trying to get into Harvard and all these you know, Ivy Leagues right after World War II. And, uh, and so they, they come to school uh, after the summer break and they step into their English class. And their English class is a new professor, his name is Professor Keating, uh, played by Robin Williams. And so basically the school is, um, is sort of this old model, traditional teaching type school. And uh, what they experience with Professor Keating is anything but traditional, it's anything but old school. In fact, what they experience is probably something more akin to revolutionary teaching. Let me let the clip play and you just watch it and, and we'll talk about it in a moment. All right. So if you haven't seen the movie, see it. Um, and uh, for those of you who have seen it, seen it uh, part of what we see um, pictured in Professor Keating is that, that his methodology is just different. Like he, he uses his methodology, whether it's you know standing up on the top of his desk or ripping pages out of the English primer or uh, any of the other number of things that he does, his methodology actually gets the attention of these boys. Right? These boys who couldn't care less. About poetry, and all of a sudden, they begin to learn the subject matter. But but he wants really for more than to hap- than that to happen. He doesn't want them just to learn the subject matter. He wants to inspire them and motivate them to really be transformed, right? And so it's a great movie. Again, I, I recommend it highly. And uh, and again, part of what we're talking about today is we're talking about revolutionary teaching in the same way that that was revolutionary, right? Back in 1959, or at least in the the, the context of this movie. Part of what Jesus was doing is he, he basically called the church to be involved in this revolutionary teaching. And revolutionary teaching, by definition, always is against uh, some, some basic authority or some basic idea or concept of what is true, and it always replaces that old concept of truth with a new concept of truth. So here's basically my thesis for today, is that revolutionary teaching is founded upon a belief that the Bible is both true and authoritative the goal of revolutionary teaching is not only information, but it's transformation. Let's start there with that first clause, that revolutionary teaching is founded upon a belief that the Bible is both true and authoritative. Okay, let me just stop and say this. What is, it, what is truth? You know, I, it's funny, I looked up uh, in the dictionary what uh, the definition for truth, and I got all these horrible definitions. It was like stuff like, um, you know, having the property of truthfulness. Well, that's not very helpful. You know what I mean? There were a lot of definitions like that. One of the definitions I came to finally was uh, that which corresponds with reality. That which corresponds with reality. You know, part of revolutionary teaching is that we really believe that the Bible is true. Now, let me ask this question, and Jeremy hearkened to it earlier. What do we believe is true in our culture? What do we believe is true in our culture? Or What do we believe about truth in our culture? Well, the answer is that most of us, two-thirds of us, three-fourths of us, don't believe in truth at all. We some, simply believe that truth uh, is what we might call our perception of things, and we don't really know the truth of what they truly are. Uh, there is a, a philosophy professor at the University of Illinois, Dr. Roger Wingert, and I'm going to read a quote um, from an article that I read. I unfortunately forgot to copy the, uh, the citation. But listen to what this philosophy professor uh, does at the beginning of each of his ethics courses with his kids at the University of Illinois. I'm going to read this. Roger Wingert, philosophy professor at the University of Illinois, often begins his introductory ethics classes by asking how many of the students believe that truth is relative. A show of hands usually reveals that two-thirds to three-fourths of the class thinks in this manner. After discussing the syllabus, testing dates, papers, and the content of the course, Wingert informs the class that they will be graded according to height. When the smart-alecky tall kid loudly agrees with this system, the professor adds, short students get A, tall students flunk. Okay, it's my kind of class, because I'm short. Inevitably, a student's hand is raised. Your grading system isn't fair. I'm the professor, retorts Wingert. I can grade however I wish, the students insist, but what you ought to do is grade us according to how well we've learned the material. You should look at our papers and exams and see how well we've understood the content of the course and grade us on that. The class nods an affirmation, especially the tall students. Professor Winger then replies, by using words like should and ought, you betray your alleged conviction that truth is relative. If you were a true relativist, you would realize that there's no external standard to which my grading system should conform. If my truth and my ethic lead me to an alternate grading system that you deem inappropriate, c'est la vie, I'll grade however I wish. Now, I'm sure that he's not the only philosophy professor that has done that over the years, but he's making a great point. We we live in a culture which has basically said truth is relative, right? There's no such thing as a meta-narrative, a big overarching truth claim. There's only micro-narratives. There's only what you perceive or what you think to be true. And what he says, what he shows to be the case here, is that we don't, none of us live that way. None of us live as if truth is relative. We live as if we all have a common assumption that as a cat is a cat, that a dog is a dog, that a chair is a chair, and that if I sit on it, it's going to hold my weight. Does that make sense? We can't live that way. What's interesting is this idea of the relativity of truth is not new. It's been around for a long time. In fact, I'm going to read a passage from John chapter 18, which will be up here on the screen. And this is the passage where Jesus has been arrested. He's standing before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is questioning him. And Pontius Pilate doesn't even believe he's guilty of the charges at hand. But in this discussion, Jesus says something really profound. He says, The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Let me read that one more time. The reason I was born. And came into the world is to testify to the truth. In other words, there's something out there that really corresponds with reality. Jesus goes on to say, everyone on the side of truth listens to me and listen to how Pilate 2,000 years ago responds. He says, what is truth? In other words, this idea of the relativity of truth, it's not new, right? There's nothing new under the sun. It's been around for ages. And on one side, we have Pilate saying, what is truth? And the other hand, we have Jesus saying, I came into the world to testify to the truth, right? Listen to what the Westminster Confession says. This is a, a very old document that was written by um, believers, academic believers long, long ago. And they got together for about three years in order to try to summarize the teachings of Scripture. But here's what Westminster Confession chapter one says. It says, the whole counsel of God concerning all, necessary, all things necessary for his own glory man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. In other words, what the Westminster divines, as they were called, said is they said, what you need to know about God and about salvation, the truth of those things is found in Scripture, right? You can find out what's true about who God is and who we are and who we need to be in response to Him because it's written down in the words of trustworthy Scripture, right? It's true. Uh, several years ago, Krista and I got a chance to go to Paris. We got to get a chance to go to, um, to, to, uh, to France on a, on a trip. It was basically, I think, for our 15th anniversary. We saved up a lot of sky miles and then stayed in hostels and ate power bars the whole time. But anyway, it was great. One of the things that we did is we, um, we got a guidebook by a guy named Rick Steves. And so um, there's the Rick Steves Guidebook to Paris. And uh, what's interesting is when you pull up Rick Steves Guidebook to Paris, and uh, you look, and there are maps with descriptions of how to get around the city of Paris, right? You can find out where the Eiffel Tower is. You can find out where the Louvre is. You can find out where the best you know, bakeries are and the other museums, all these different places around town. And when you look at the map, it's amazing how they've created this map so that it corresponds to the reality of the city of Paris, right? You, know, you, you actually follow it, and you find your way to the Eiffel Tower. There's a sense in which what the Westminster Confession is saying And what Scripture is teaching is that what we need to know about God and about ourselves, the truth of those things, is written accurately in the pages of Scripture. Revolutionary teaching of the church is that we believe that the Bible is true, right? That it actually reveals who God is and who we are and how we're to live our lives. Not only do we believe that it's true, but we believe that it's authoritative, right? So not only is the Bible true, but it has the authority and the right to tell us what to do. Back to this ancient document called the Westminster Confession, says this, the authority of Holy Scripture, of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received, because it is the word of God. In other words, what they are saying is they're saying that the Bible is not only true, but it has the authority to tell us how to live our lives. Let me call time out here for a second. Um, probably about 12 years ago, we were living on Lookout Mountain, and a buddy of mine and I had started a business where we um, bought and sold houses, and we bought houses and rented them out to college kids, and uh, we, you know, were not making very much money. We were probably spending more money fixing up the houses and trying to collect from college kids, and we were actually, you know, getting wealthy off this, but I remember vividly um, getting our first rent check from one of the group of college kids, and, you know, I don't know what our payment was, our mortgage payment, but I remember I got to take this rent check and deposit it in the bank, right? And it, was just, it just felt so awesome to be able to go, man, we're going to make, you know, maybe 250 bucks total, you know, net. And so I remember getting in my car and driving across the top of the mountain to the bank and walking in the bank and, you know, signing the check and, and depositing it into our account. I was so happy, just excited. Got back in my car, listening to the radio, kind of on cloud nine, you know, because we were, you know, this thing was working out and as I drove across the top of the mountain, there's one dip in the mountain where you go down a little valley and come up a hill on the other side. And it's 35 miles an hour right there. And there's always a cop sitting close by. And it's really hard to go 35 miles an hour because you come down a big hill and go up another. Anyway, but I just wasn't thinking because I was so excited about, you know, having deposited this check. And so as I cruised down this hill and started going up the other side, I turned into my rearview mirror. I saw flashing blue lights. And I looked at my speedometer and I was going 42. So I was going, I was speeding, no doubt. But I thought, you know what, what in the world, what what a way to ruin my great day, right? So as I got this ticket, I thought, this is ridiculous. I haven't had a ticket in 18 years. Like it had literally been 18 years. And so I thought, I'm actually going to go to the judge and I'm going to see if I can't get out of this ticket. And so I got a little court date, you know, they tell you, you can go to court if you want to. And I thought, I'm going to do it, right? And so, you know, the day came for me to go to court. It was sort of near lunchtime or whatever. So I drove to, you know, whatever building was up on the mountain there. And there was a room full of people. And they were all stating their cases to this judge. And I've I've told this story before. But, um, you know, there was this one guy who had been pulled over twice And uh, he tried to outrun the cops, and he got a ticket. Well, yeah, no surprise. And there's another lady, and she, you know, got pulled over in the same spot I did for going a few miles over the speed limit. She was probably in her mid 60s, and I remember listening to her state her case to this judge, and she said, "Judge, I haven't had a ticket since I was, you know, 24 years old, and here she is in her mid 60s. It's been like 40 years." And so I thought, "Oh my word, this is terrible. This is my line of defense." My line of defense is I haven't gotten a ticket in 18 years, but for her it's been 40. And, uh, and it's funny because I watched her, him, as he dealt with her, and he basically said, ma'am, I'm sorry, you broke the law. Here's your ticket. You got to pay it. And I remember thinking, awesome. You know, so I got up there. I didn't even bother making my case. I just said, hey, where do I pay, right? Because the judge actually had the authority to, to tell me what to do, right? He had the authority to say, sorry, you have to pay that ticket. In the same way, what the Westminster Divines are saying, and what God is saying, and what I think the church is saying, is this revolutionary truth that not only is the Bible true, but it has the authority to tell us what to do precisely where it makes us uncomfortable, precisely where you don't like it, precisely where it rubs you the wrong way. It's no big deal to assert that the Bible is true and authoritative where you agree with it. It, it, Where it really matters, where the rubber meets the road, is where you don't agree with it, where you don't like it. So all the places in Scripture that basically say, hey, you need to go love people who are unlovable, guess what? That's where I need to sit back and go, I may not want to do that, but I need to do that. You, you know, I've talked about this time and time again, but I'm not a great tither. You know, I'm so cheap. I'm, I'm just, you know, unbelievably chintzy. It's great that Krista's is the one that's in charge of tithing for our family because I don't have to do it. It just magically happens because she does it. But, uh, but, you know, that's exactly where I need to listen to the words of Scripture and say, okay, God, it's not my money. This is your money. And I'm giving this back as an act of worship to you. It it really applies in a thousand different ways throughout the context of Scripture. Basically, the, the Bible is true and authoritative as it pertains to sexuality, right? That the only appropriate sexuality is in the bounds of a marriage, covenant, and relationship. And not only in sexuality, but in salvation, in heaven, and in hell, the Bible has authority to tell us what's true and what to do. In terms of the manner and means of salvation, the authority structure of the church, the authority structure of the family, godly relationships, gossip and slander, speaking the truth in love. If you know someone that has something against you, going to that person. If someone has sinned against you, go and try to work it out with them. In other words, all of the places where scripture makes us uncomfortable is exactly where we need to give it authority in our lives. The Bible is true. And authoritative. It has the ability to tell us what's true and what to do. This ought to make churches revolutionary. It ought to make them different. The revolutionary teaching of Scripture is founded upon a belief that the Bible is both true and authoritative. The goal of revolutionary teaching is not only information, but it's also transformation. That's our next point. The goal of revolutionary teaching is not only information, but transformation. I'm going to read two sections of verses. The first is James chapter 1. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. In other words, faith or a certain uh, conceptual belief framework, uh, giving assent to certain things, is uh, if it's by itself, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. In other words, if you truly believe it'll it's going to be accompanied by fruit. You believe that there is one God, that's great, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The goal of revolutionary teaching, it's not just information, it's transformation, right? That's it's actually revolutionary, right? Knowing a lot of stuff is pretty easy. Being transformed is hard. Listen to what Jesus has to say in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you, Right? He assumes that they know that he is the Lord. They assume that he assumes that they know certain things, but he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words or hears the information and does does them, I will show what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the man who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying uh, information is great, but information never guarantees transformation, right? Right information is something, but it's not everything. Here's another article that I've recited a few times. There's a magazine called Fast Company, And in uh, 2005, there was an article that they published called Change or Die that was based upon uh, some research on um, 2,000 people that had had bypass surgery. And basically what they found when they did the research is that the doctor said, okay, you've had bypass surgery, right, 2,000 of you, and here's what you need to do in order to not be in here to have stents put in or to have another bypass surgery. And it was pretty simple stuff. It was, you know, quit smoking you know, change your diet and make sure to exercise and get good rest. It was a pretty simple set of things. And what the research found is that a very, very small percentage of those people were actually able to change. And so what they found is there were four things that came out of this, which they called the myths of change. The first is this. The first myth was, is this, that crisis is a powerful impetus for change. Crisis is a powerful impetus for change. In other words, that's a myth right? Because guess what? All of those 2,000 people had bypass surgery. In my book, that's a crisis, right? And and what's interesting is that 90% of them were back in for some form of heart surgery within the next three years. In other words, they didn't make those changes, right? That's myth number one. Myth number two is that fear is a powerful motivator, right? People still Smoke. People still eat fried food, right? Despite all the warnings you put all over everything, people are still making these decisions. And so fear didn't change people. Crisis didn't change people. Thirdly, another myth was that the facts will set us free. In other words, it's a myth to say, well, if people simply know better or they know the right thing to do, then they'll change. Wrong. It's a myth. In fact, there was an article that I read recently from a, a, in a magazine called Food Navigator USA, written by a woman named Elaine Watson, who's a, a dietitian, and, and the, basically she was writing about food labels. And she, bas- she said that in 2008, that New York City required food labels on all of its foods, and that 84% of New Yorkers were in favor of you know, putting these labels on different food products. And that 93% of the people that they interviewed in healthcare were all in favor of putting these labels on food products at restaurants and all these different places. The assumption being, if you look at something, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and you see that it has 52% of you know, your saturated fat for the day, that you'll go, I'm not eating Ben and Jerry's yogurt, right? Guess where I am about half of the Saturday nights throughout the course of the year. I'm in the uh, ice cream aisle at Kroger picking up a thing of New York Superfudge Chunk, right? Knowing full well, that I've already had probably over 100% of my saturated fat for the day. What was interesting, and what she points out in this article, is that these, all of these labels, giving people all the right information, basically yielded negligible change in, this, in New York City over the course of six and a half years. In other words, information or the facts will not set us free. Finally, another myth of change is that small, gradual changes are easier to maintain. The actual, the 10% that we're able to change Instead of making small incremental changes, made broad sweeping changes. Right, that was one of the truths that came out of this. Broad sweeping changes stick; little incremental changes don't. The two other things that came out of this article was that uh, that reframing. In other words, if your framework to getting healthy or to working out or whatever is fear that you're going to die of a heart attack, it's not very effective. But if you can reframe that idea by saying, "I'm going to work out so that I can walk my daughter down the aisle." or I'm going to work out so that when I'm you know, 65, I can run a marathon. Having a positive frame for your health actually does change things. And then finally, one of the other things that the small group of 10% were able to do to avoid being back in for heart surgery is they were all involved in a support group or in accountability. Right? Does that make sense? The idea of all of this is to simply say, information is not enough. You've got to be transformed. Right. Now the question is, what transforms us? What's the revolutionary teaching of the church that transforms us? Ultimately, it's the mercy of God. Listen to Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is probably familiar for a lot of you. But Paul writes this, and again, this is the first 11 chapters of Romans. He's getting into sort of a lot of heavy theology, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death. He's getting into all of this, this stuff, which is ultimately Uh, the gospel, but it's heavy theology. And then at the beginning of of chapter 12, he says this, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, right? In view of God's mercy. Mercy is where we don't get what we deserve. You don't get what you deserve. I haven't gotten what I deserve. The wages of sin is death. I deserve to be separated from from god i deserved immediately to die therefore i urge you brothers and sisters in view of god's mercy through jesus to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god this is your true and proper worship do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed that's a passive verb be transformed by the renewing of your mind in other words what transforms your mind, what transforms you as a human being is the mercy of God in Jesus, his perfect life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. Transformation isn't because you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Transformation isn't because you finally get all the right information. Transformation isn't because you grit your teeth and you're going to say, I'm going to do it this this time. The most powerful transformational agent is looking up at the throne of heaven, and instead of seeing a judge, you see a father who gave his only begotten son in order to live a perfect life that you couldn't live and die a death that he wasn't willing for you to die. And he rose him again from the dead, conquering your greatest enemy's sin and death. That is the mercy of God. That's the greatest transformational power that the world has ever known. When I was in Gainesville, Georgia as a youth pastor, I had the privilege of working with all sorts of kids. You know, I got the, the stinky kids, I got the cool kids, I got the uncool kids, I got all the kids, loved them, every single one of them. And uh, one of the kids I got a chance to work with was a girl, we'll just call her Kate. And uh, her dad was an elder, and uh, her mom was great. Um, her mom had spent a lot of time at Brie in Switzerland with Francis Schaefer, just fantastic family. But uh, even though Kate was the daughter of this, um, you know, very healthy spiritual home, and a great dad who loved the Lord a lot and a mom who loved the Lord a lot. Boy, she just was not a particularly um, wholesome young person. Uh, again, I loved her. She was great. Um, but she was constantly giving her parents just nightmares and headaches all the way through junior high, all the way through high school. And she was rebelling, and it was this you know, constant litany of all these things that she was doing um, to get in trouble and to sort of thumb her nose at her parents. And uh, they were at their wits' end. Well, there came a point where she, you know, she had heard everything. She'd been in Sunday school all her life. And her parents had prayed and read the Bible with her all through you know, junior high and high school and elementary school. You know, She had been to summer camp and all these things, and she had all the information, she could have gotten 100 on the test, but she wasn't changed, right? She hadn't been transformed. One summer, uh, some Young Life folks invited her to come and to be on work crew, so not even to a tent camp, but to be part of the work crew at Windy so, Gap, and so she said, all right, I'll go. And so she went and got up every morning at 5 a.m. and made 800 eggs and you, know, you know, cooked meals and made you know another 800 um, English muffins and spent her time with all these wonderful people in the context of all these believers, in the context of hearing worship, sort of in the background. And it was at that, um, that camp, Wendy Gap, after her junior year, before her summer year, that she became a believer. She came back to Westminster Church, and she was different. She was a different human being. She had been transformed, not because of any new information, but because God finally got a hold of her and because of his mercy, he called her to himself. And it was interesting talking to her mother. I remember her mother catching me um, at church one day and pulled me aside. She said, you gotta talk to Kate. He, she basically said, she's just a different person since she got back. And I remember her, her mom's direct quote was, it's like she had a personality transplant. In other words, she has been transformed by the mercy of God. So the question is, how should we be transformed? Should we be transformed? The answer is that we should be transformed by the mercy of God. And so what does that transformed life look like? First of all, it looks like humility, right? One of the things that the gospel shows us, one of the things the gospel communicates to us is that we're far worse than we actually know, right? That that our hearts are much more Swiss cheese-ish than we realize. Our hearts have holes in them. You know, we have fears, we have idols, we have massive blind spots. If you don't think you have a blind spot, that in and of itself is a pretty big blind spot, right? Our hearts are broken. We're worse than we possibly know, and this ought to bring us to a point of being humble, right? That we, we don't think we're better than anyone else, that we don't assume that we're better than anyone else, because we know that we're saved and transformed precisely, because of God's mercy, because we needed his mercy. So it ought to make us humble. We ought to be transformed into these humble beings, these humble followers of Christ. But also, we should look brave. We should look courageous. Because at the same time that the gospel declares that we're worse than we possibly could ever know, the gospel also communicates to us that we're loved more than we could ever know. Does that make sense? The fact that the author of reality, the fact that our adopted father, God, he looks down upon us despite all of the brokenness, despite all of the, the, the rigidness, despite all of the mold on our hearts, despite all of the blackness that God looks down and he says, I'm going to give my son to these people in order to live a life that they could not live, to die a death that I'm not willing for them to die and to rise again from the dead. I want to, them to know that I love them that much, right? And so the gospel communicates to us that we're more sinful than we would ever know, but at the same time it communicates to us that we're more loved than we can possibly ever imagine. And so the transformed followers of Christ, members of this revolution with him should be humble, should be courageous, should be brave. Revolutionary teaching, the revolutionary teaching of the church is founded upon a belief that the Bible is both true and authoritative. It has the ability to tell us what's true and what to do. And the goal of revolutionary teaching, it's not just information, but ultimately it's transformation. Let's take a moment let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for communicating to us who you are, but not only who we are, but maybe more importantly who you are, who your son Jesus is, and how it is that we should respond to you. Father, I thank you that you've sent your Holy Spirit upon us um, to not only um, show us the brokenness of our hearts, um, to reveal to us that sin in us, But I thank you, Father, that you've given us the Holy Spirit to even desire to be made righteous, Um, not only righteous with you through trusting in your son Jesus, but righteous um, as we are set free um, from the bonds and the shackles of our idolatry and our selfishness and our pride and our sinfulness, Father. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the ability to embrace the gospel as a drowning man would embrace um, a life preserver, Father, that we would simply hold on to your son, Jesus, uh, for dear life. Father, we pray all these things now in his name. Amen.